The text that we have uh, for today is Luke, the third chapter, uh, verses 1 through 20. It's a fairly substantial text, but, but as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we've got to kind of get used to that because we, um, the Gospel of Luke, oh, thank you, wow, look at that. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is uh, an extensive book, and, it, and if, to get through all of the chapters, one, one needs to take some substantial pieces of, uh, uh, of text. And so this is the part of the, of the Gospel that is about, the, about John the Baptist. And we're, in, in other words, we're still in those, the sections that Luke has chosen to tell us that lead into the ministry of Jesus. We've had glimpses of Jesus along the way, of course. We've had his birth. We saw him at, uh, two weeks ago as he was in the, the temple when he was 12 years old. But now years and years have passed, two decades have passed. And, and uh, we are at the time of his being an, an adult. And, but at the same time, the, the things that we hear in this text are not things that are totally new and strange to us as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in fact, uh, the, as you look at the, if you have one of the handouts, I don't know whether you do or not, if you'd like one, raise your hand and perhaps somebody can, can bring one forward to you. Uh, the handouts that have the scripture uh, on it in, in my own translation and have the notes that I'm going to be following uh, on them. Uh, the, the title that I've chosen is Power in Expectation. And that idea of expectation, of anticipation, of hope for something new, something that breaks the pattern of the past, is something that, is, that runs all the way through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it runs on, on into the, the, the book of Acts. And, and Luke, throughout all of it, challenges us to, to think about our expectations, to examine what we expect of God, what we expect of our faith, what do we expect of a relationship with God and of, uh, of our relationships within, our, within a community as it unfolds across the, the, uh, the many pages. All of us human beings have hopes, we have fears, we have all of these things that shape our lives. You know, I, many of us, I, certainly I have gone through kind of the whiplash of, of COVID. We've all, we're all still caught in it, you know. I, I, I was talking to, you know, members of the staff and others uh, just a few weeks ago pre presenting the anticipation that we were going to have kind of the collapse of the uh, infection rate of the virus and everything was going to come down because we we're going to reach a point of, of having uh, enough people vaccinated and so forth and, and that by this time we would all be sitting here uh, without masks and and everybody would be able to participate and would be able to have a, an in-person uh, retreat in early September and so forth. All of that has uh, evaporated as uh, things have unfolded and fears have played on fears and all kinds of stuff so that, that these uh, anticipations and, and fears and hopes uh, shift in our lives. But as you go through the Gospel of, of Luke, it, the, the anticipations are specifically all of the built-up, powerful anticipations of God doing something in a Messiah, of God sending his Messiah, of God intervening in everything. And then Jesus coming, and then seemingly everything going wrong. 
we've, we've noted numerous times the, the great story that Luke tells in the, in the last chapter of the gospel of, on the road to Emmaus where Jesus meets the two disciples after his crucifixion and his resurrection. It is Jesus after his resurrection that meets them there. And they are full of despair. They had been full of anticipation and hope and they express it so succinctly in that phrase that perhaps you'll remember. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And just all that's born in that of a built-up joy of things moving forward and it looking like it was all coming about and then death and collapse and nothing. We had hoped. But if you go back to the very first sermon in this series, which was not about Luke chapter 1 verse 1, but was about Luke chapter 4, when Jesus for the first time goes to his, or Jesus after his baptism goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And there speaks in what for, in Luke is kind of the, the keynote address of Jesus' ministry. There that anticipation is also built up. He reads from Isaiah 61 and he looks out at, the, at all of those in the synagogue and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And everybody wonders about him. How could he say such things about God's grace when we know, you know, he's one of the hometown boys here. And Jesus then begins to talk and sure enough, things go awry and before we're at the end of the passage, they're running him out of town, uh, trying to take him out to the cliff on which this, the town of Nazareth is built as it looks out over the Jezreel Valley and and they want to throw him down, get rid of him entirely. The anticipation and disappointment. But as we've gone through these first chapters again and again and again, it's that way. In the, right at the beginning when Gabriel appears to Zechariah and that, that moment, that iconic moment as he's standing there to offer the prayers of the people in incense before God, and, and Gabriel comes and, and tells about that. It's on, there, I've included a few verses from it on the back side of your, of your uh, note sheet from, from Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Gabriel anticipates what John the Baptist is going to mean. It's not John the Baptist, of course, yet, but he's John. And uh, not even born yet, not even conceived yet, but what he's going to mean. And Gabriel says... He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him, that is, go before God, because it's God that's coming here. Go before him with Elijah's spirit and power to turn the father's, children, uh, father's hearts toward children and to help disobedient people learn the thinking of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And in this he echoes, Gabriel echoes Malachi and uh, the scriptures uh, that are there talking about the coming of Elijah, that this one is going to be like Elijah. And then you follow on and, and John is born and his father Zechariah is, a, uh, is gifted with prophecy about him. And I've included also verses from chapter 1 verses 76 to 79 there on your sheet. 
Zechariah functions as a prophet and echoes those expectations that are uh, described by Gabriel. And as you'll notice as I read this, it, it also echoes Isaiah 9 that, that you heard um, Kyle read just a few moments ago. You, little child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. That is the most, God Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his paths. We're going to talk about these paths this morning. God, the paths of God to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. It's just feeds directly into our passage for this morning. Notice verse, uh, verse 78. Because of the deep heart of compassion of our God, the slachna of compassion of our God, by which a dawn light from on high will visit us to shine light for those sitting in darkness, from Isaiah 9, and, and in death's shadow, to lead our feet straight into a path of peace. Such anticipation of who this baby just born, just named, what he's going to mean and what he's going to be. And then on it goes. We've seen Mary, of course, talking in the Magnificat about the, the bringing down of the, of the high and mighty, the lifting up of the humble. We've heard Simeon in the temple. He's there. He's leading those who are looking for the consolation of Israel. We've met Anna in the temple, a prophet, prophet there, who's, who's also talking to those who are looking for the deliverance of Jerusalem. We saw young Jesus in the temple, 12 years old, and his parents come looking for him. Just as natural as it can be, they're upset that he hasn't told them where he is. And he just, as we saw, just looks and says, didn't you know that I, where I had to be? Why were you even looking for me? Shouldn't you have known? This is the anticipation of all of it. And so in our text also, the people are described as full of anticipation. I want to start sort of down in the middle of our, of our text with chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and that which explicitly talks about that expectation. When the people became full of expectation and all were debating in their hearts about John, whether or not he might be the anointed king, that is the, the Messiah, the Christ, John responded to all by saying, I, for my part, am simply plunging you in water. But the one who's stronger than me is coming. For him, I'm not important enough. He can also, I'm not sufficient. I'm not important enough to untie the thong of his sandals. He himself will plunge you in Holy Spirit and fire. Plunge here being what is usually translated as baptized, that being a kind of the transliteration of the, of the Greek word rather than a translation. He himself will plunge you in Holy Spirit and fire. He has his winnowing shovel in his hand so as to purge the threshing floor as he throws up the grain and lets the chaff blow away. Purge the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn but he'll burn the chaff with a fire no one can stop. So the people have all kinds of expectations. But as 
Luke lets us know about those expectations and describes them. We see that uh, we, of course, know better than they do. They, we've been with the story all along here, and we know that, the, that John is not the one who's the anointed king. And John, of course, knows it as well. And so John has to redirect the anticipations that build up to one who's coming, who's stronger, who brings Holy Spirit, who brings fire. So these 20 years have passed, and uh, a lot has happened, but now those anticipations that were there at the time of Jesus' birth and John's birth are playing out among the people as they, as they think about John and as they anticipate what's going on. John's parents are no doubt by this time, the elderly Elizabeth and Zechariah are no doubt gone. Mary is probably around, what, 48 now? So getting up into middle age, actually in those days quite, quite old, uh, uh, as people expected, life expectancy was in those days. And so Luke introduces John's ministry to us here in this new situation in which John is on his own. We don't know what all's happened to John in those 20 years. It's, you know, there are all kinds of speculations as to whether he might have gone to, out to Qumran and the dead, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were made and all kinds of things like that. Nobody knows. We just see him appear in the, in the wilderness and the way in which Luke describes it, he wants us, if we know our, the scriptures, to hear echoes of the prophets in, in this description, especially of the prophet Jeremiah. So that if you look up the first line of Jeremiah in, in the, the language that Matthew's, uh, I'm sorry, that Luke is writing in, namely in Greek, it's nearly word for word for the, the way in which he describes uh, John coming and the beginning of his, uh, his ministry. And he prefaces that with this whole list that seems sort of strange to us of all of these people that are rulers in one way or another. It has a kind of, kind of the, the quality of giving us the time. Uh, you know, it's the 15th year of the rule of Tiberius Caesar. But even that, when you start to analyze it, it's not too clear exactly what year uh, that, that was. And the rest of them are just sort of layering on all of the structures of ordinary human power that are around this expectation that is breaking out. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the rule of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. It's interesting that Luke, in, in this, the verb that he uses, it's hard to get it to come, come across in English, but the verb that he uses for both of them is the same. In other words, this is the governing power of Rome to run things. Tiberius Caesar, it doesn't talk of him as king or with a reign. It talks of him as governing. And then Pontius Pilate is governing Judea. Judea, Judea should be, is the center where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. It's, it's the heart of Jewish life. But here a Roman governor is in control of it, of it all. Then we go to the, the ones that we might consider ro uh, Jewish rulers. Now Herod, this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was a regional ruler in Galilee. But his brother Philip ruled the region of Etruria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was the regional ruler of Abilene. Uh, that, that, 
sounds like Kansas or Texas, but uh, it actually probably should be better pronounced Abilene in, in this kind of context, but, um, but it is the word Abilene. But it's just these areas, this is what has happened to the powerful kingdom of Herod, king of the Jews. It's been dissipated out into regional rulers with the Romans taking over the heart of it. This was while the high priesthood was controlled by Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at this particular time, and his father-in-law was Annas. Annas had been, when the Romans took over Judea, then the governor of Syria had, took over the right to appoint the high priest of the Jews. And so Quirinius appointed Annas as high priest. It was a way of getting rid of the old dynasty that had been there of the Boethusians and of bringing in a new dynasty that they could work with of Annas. And Annas started this new dynasty and several of his sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas became high priest after him. And so Annas is there as kind of the, the patriarch of the dynasty and Caiaphas is the one who's actually functioning as, as high priest. So Rome rules Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and they rule Judea and they control the high priesthood. And those that are the former kings, little kinglets, are out there ruling regional areas. This is the way the world is structured, the structures, the layers of power that stifle their, the expectations of the people. And so it's out then, not in these areas, but in the wilderness. Not that, that the wilderness wasn't part of some, some, in some way of some of these things, but it's that wilderness that's like the wilderness that the people of Israel came through in the Exodus. God's word came upon John. He uses a phrase that's not just came to him, as it's often translated, but it came upon him. And that's the phrase that's used about Jeremiah 600 years ago. The word of God came upon Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, in the days of King Josiah, the son of Ammon, of Judah, in the 13th year of his, his reign. It's echoing those words, now we look at, at John the Baptist walking across the desert, as we saw in the video. Uh, they're dressed really to be the wild man of the desert and so on. But John not only is like Jeremiah, namely of a priestly family and so forth, he's also like Isaiah. Isaiah, who is the prophet of the Babylonian exile, who called out to comfort Israel. Comfort ye, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comforting, speak, speak appealingly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and so forth at the beginning of the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Because Israel's God was the God of the whole creation and, he, and what he did and uh, made a difference for the whole creation and his reign would be uh, forever. It would be over all of his creation. He would be king forever. And so John brings that reality of Isaiah 40 to, to life, Luke says. And he quotes extensively from, from Isaiah for, for, for the space that he has. He quotes several verses from Isaiah chapter 40. Look at Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Then God's word came upon John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
and he went into all the region around the Jordan. Notice it doesn't say he went into the region of Jerusalem or up into Galilee, but in that wilderness area around the, the Jordan there. The Jordan being the place, of course, where the people entered the promised land, where when the priests touched the water of the Jordan, it parted, and they were able to go across on dry land. It's the place where even a pagan like Naaman, when he was commanded by the prophet Elisha, could wash and be cleaned, cleansed of leprosy and so forth. So it had all of those echoes. He's there in the Jordan proclaiming a plunging in water. This is the word baptism. Uh, plunging in water. Expressing a change of heart and mind. That's the traditional word repentance. Metanoia, changing of the mind for forgiveness of sins. And then Luke notes, as is written in a scroll of the oracles of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled up and every mountain and hill humbled low. And he uses the word for humbling here like you would for a person. Those mountains are humbled though. The crooked things will be made straight and the rough ways will be smooth paths and all flesh will see God's intervention to save. Baptism is a physical thing being plunged in water but it's directly tied to a change of heart. You don't go through this baptism unless it is to express a change of thinking, that you want to see the world, you have different expectations than those that have developed in, in, in the people around you. It leads to concrete action, as John clearly says later on, a life of engagement with God, trusting the, the reality of God and, and that God is working, God is real, God's kingdom is there, it's breaking in, it's breaking the bonds of, of seeing things only in terms of human power and human, uh, human even oppression as one sees in, in, in that, that time. God's, God then promises transformation, forgiveness of sins. Now I want, you, I want you to think about this, if you've got the text in front of you in, in, in some way, the, the way in which Luke describes John's work. He goes out into the whole region and he proclaims a baptism about a change of thinking and a change of heart. I want to suggest to you that, it, that, and he juxtaposes this with Isaiah, that John is going crying in the wilderness and he's saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In, in a sense, this is an interpretation or, or his proclamation of baptism uh, uh, of repentance is that making the past right. Is this me going doing all this? Wow, what's happening here? Something that, can I, if I just sit still, will I, maybe I won't make any more noise like that. The, the, the part that is the urging, the call to people, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It's what in John's message is to, to change your whole way of thinking and be baptized as, an, as a sign uh, of that. And then in the, in, for the prophet, there comes this next segment 
that you sometimes we read it as though it's the sort of a, a set of things to do, you know, that we've got to do. Every ravine will be filled up. Every mountain and hill will be humbled low. And the crooked things have to be made straight. And the rough places plain and all that sort of thing. But actually the way in which Isaiah expresses it, it's in the passive voice. It's uh, the passive voice that expresses divine action. God's action here. And so there comes first the call to, to change your way of thinking. Prepare the way of the Lord in yourself, in your own way. And then God's going to intervene and God's going to bring it about. Every ravine will be filled up. Every mountain and hill humbled low. The crooked things will be made straight. The rough ways will be smooth paths. And I want to propose to you anyway to think about it that that's in a sense what all gets gathered up into that phrase forgiveness of sin all of the things that have happened to Israel all of the mess that they're in for hundreds of years has been because of their sin and the hope of their ever being a new reality could not depend on them reforming themselves it had to depend or people in general reforming themselves it had to depend on what God would do. God would fill the ravines in. God would bring down the mountaintops. God would take the crooked things and make them straight. And the rough places he would turn into smooth paths so that all flesh can see the God's intervention to save. The, sal the saving thing of God literally is, is what the, the, the Greek has. God's intervention to save. And so... Luke describes John in this as embodying the very uh, message of, of Isaiah. God's promises are promises of transformation, of forgiveness of sins, and then transformation of life as that gets lived out in life. Sin, brokenness, all of this, this is what caused the crisis of the, that the people are in, were in. And people do not live with the reality of God. They, there is not a trust in God. There is, it's, it's like Isaiah going to King Ahaz and saying, I'll, I'll give you a sign, any sign you want. And King Ahaz, you remember, says, I don't want a sign. I don't want any sign from God. I don't trust God. I've got to get an alliance with the Assyrians. That's what I need to do. And he doesn't take, won't take the, the, the sign of the virgin conceiving and bearing a child and so forth. It's, that's where human beings are. They're learning to see that God is actually doing something rather than depending on our power to fight fire with fire. The violence blocks the vision of God and human power, of course, can be good, but it can also be corrupting and can destroy. And as the people of Israel were at that time, they were on a road, both John says and Jesus says, to, to wrath not something that God's going to bring on them, but something they're bringing on themselves. What's going to be destroyed is not Rome, but it's going to be Jerusalem and the people. And so Isaiah leads us through that, and, and uh, Luke picks that up and links it strongly to, to uh, what uh, John the Baptist is doing. And then he calls out to uh, sees the people around him. This, this, I'm, I'm not sure, that, but I want to suggest that the way that often this is heard, at least the, I'll just say the way I've heard it, 
and indeed the way I translated it at first here is, is really the wrong way to translate it. He therefore, this is Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He therefore began addressing the crowds that came to be plunged in water by him. You brood of vipers. That's sort of the standard good translation. Very colorful. I love it. Brood of vipers. What do you think of when you think of a viper? You think of a poisonous snake that's going to bite you, that's going to damage you. But that's not how John sees the crowds. He sees them more like a wriggling mass of snakes that don't have any direction. It's not that they're dangerous, it's they don't know where they're going and they're, it's like, and to use a different set of phrases, or a different phrase, the blind leading the blind. They have no, and so he asks, who, who gave you any direction that you should flee from the coming wrath? When he speaks of this coming wrath, he isn't threatening wrath. He's warning that the people are already creating it. The direction of the people and the leaders is toward self-trust, violence, corruption, compromise, and these, the corruption of the high priest and the, the violence that's on the other side all work together to destroy any hope. They don't know any God that they can believe in that God is actually working among them. They don't know the grace of God. And so John comes to t bring that, just like Gabriel had said and just like Zechariah had said. The process is already underway. The ax is at the root of the trees. Every tree, that is, uh, every tree defined by patterns of power of the world around it will be destroyed by that wrath that's going to break over them. Jesus describes it when he comes to Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. If only you had known the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. One stone won't be left on top of another, he said, as all of this comes. And it's in that context that we have the only other use of the term wrath in the, in the gospel of of Luke. Can there be a light that dawns? Can it be different? God's grace, God's grace is breaking and that's what, in a sense, that's what John threatens them with. He threatens them with grace. He threatens them with love. He threatens them with God forgiving their sins and uh, changing the whole way that they think. They are there to be plunged in water to mark a change in thinking, but they don't know how to believe in a God like that. And that God is a challenge all the way through. That is the God who ends up on a cross and ends up taking our sin. And so, that's where John begins, that challenging them. And, and then you see John's interaction with, with the people. What's important, he tells them, is not their old separating identities being children of Abraham, but real trust in God's action shown in basic choices of their own actions, living into God's self-giving love. That's hard. Not that it's obviously a difficult thing to do, but us being humans, it is hard for us to do.
Luke chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Now, don't start saying in yourselves, we have Abraham as father, for I'm telling you that God is able out of these rocks to raise up children for Abraham. You see, the axe is already lying there at the root of the trees. So every tree that's not producing an excellent fruit is being cut, cut off and thrown into the fire. Now the crowd were always questioning him, saying, so what should we do? And in response, he would tell them, the person who has two shirts, this is the word ketone for, for the, what you wear against your skin, the uh, sort of a semi-public undergarment, so to speak, the person who has two shirts should share with someone who has none. And one who has food should do the same. Now even tax collectors came to be plunged in water and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, enforce nothing more than what is explicitly authorized for you. Some of those who served as soldiers also questioned him, what about us? What should we do? And he told them, don't shake down, and literally that's, that's a literal translation of it. It's like that, that uh, phrase in English, to shake somebody down. Don't shake down or harass anyone and be satisfied with your wages. Plunge into this change of heart, baptism that marks a new way of thinking, a new direction, putting God at the center. So what do you do? And then, I don't know how you feel when you read that, that section of John's answers. I, I, I have to say, you know, I sort of feel disappointed. In, in John's answers, they, they seem rather simplistic. In response, he would tell them, the person who has two shirts should share with someone who has none, and one who has food should do the same. Now notice the scale we're operating on. This is not the rich and the poor. This is two poor people. One poor person's got two shirts, and one poor person that doesn't have any shirts. And so, give. Here's somebody that has some food, and here's somebody that has no food. Share, share. This doesn't solve the human power problem. Herod's still there, Pilate's still there, Caiaphas is still there, poverty's still there. Shouldn't the process start with them, not me? I'm not the problem. There's an old truism, of course, that you know, you can't change or you can't control other people but you can change yourself but what does it mean to really change a life to change a vision of life to step into God's grace and to live that out that opens a door to God in one life in my life that changes me to see things differently and to act differently in relationship to everything to act with the eyes of self-giving love of God, the eyes of compassion, the deep compassion of our God that was mentioned by Zechariah. That is the love that God shows, that shows his eternal, everlasting power. It's the power of life in which God takes our sin and brokenness and dies on a cross for us in order to create new life. It is radically, utterly unexpected. I didn't see that coming. And it doesn't fit any of the patterns of power that we regularly live by. 
tax collectors working for the government, imposing it on the poor people. They come to John. Now, verses 12 and 13. Now even tax collectors came to be plunged in water, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Enforce nothing more than what you're, what's explicitly authorized for you. Shouldn't he say, Stop being tax collectors. Stop working for the government. Stop working for Herod. Herod's even, or certainly even worse, stop working for Tiberius. Even these sinners, though, are also creatures of God and beloved by God and can step into a path of peace. Start where you are. Turn your profession known and defined by corruption into a place of fairness and regularity and not a cent more than is necessary. Start where you are. God wants to forgive and renew even you. Start with that simple honesty. And then there are these soldiers. Soldiers that are working probably for Antipas. They're not probably working for, for um, Rome directly. These are not Roman soldiers directly. But Antipas is, uh, Herod Antipas is soldiers. Some who served as soldiers also questioned him. What about us? What should we do? And he told them, don't shake down or harass anyone and be satisfied with your wages. We're told just a verse or two later how John condemned Herod again and again. Condemned him for the way in which he took his brother's wife and so forth, but also for all of the other evils that he did. Shouldn't these soldiers get rid of Herod? John could have a conversation with them. You, you know... You know what I've said about Herod, how bad he is, how evil he is. The world would be a better place without Herod Antipas. Your soldiers, I don't have to tell you what to do. Let's get organized and erase this blight. We can change things. But instead, there is this different thing that we are in something that God is doing, God's kingdom breaking into the world. And in the most important thing is to open a doorway for God in my own life and begin to live that. Change you. You exercise the power of violence, the foundation of corruption. <laughs> they pay you a very little so that you'll double your pay by, by extorting it from others. What's the good of a sword? What's the good of facing dangers in war if you don't get to use it for yourself? So start with you. Open that door for God. Trust that God is really working. He will take on himself even your troubles, your suffering and death. You are his creatures. You are his beloved. John knows that so much, so much more is coming. It's even beyond his own grasp as he talks about Jesus. Chapter 3, verses, verse 16, let's say, 
He says, I, for my part, am simply plunging you in water. But the one who's stronger than me is coming. For him, I'm not important enough to, to untie the thong of his sandals. He himself will plunge you in Holy Spirit and fire. Mm. Then it says at the end of that, so by appealing to them in many other ways as well, he announced good news to the people. It was not a warning of hellfire and brimstone. It was good news for the people. But then it concludes our text, but Herod, that regional ruler, because John reproved him for what he did with Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all of the evil things that he did, added this also to them, that Herod locked John up under guard. Oh. John should have gotten Herod assassinated, shouldn't he? He should have stepped in and killed the guy talking to those soldiers. Then he wouldn't have been in prison. Then he wouldn't have had to face that. John, John let himself be a victim because he wasn't strong enough to fight. Jesus suffered from the same malady that he knew that God was working in a different level, a more transformative, powerful level. He gave himself, he called his disciples to give themselves as instruments of God in the world and to see God actually doing it. We're here today because they didn't fight. They lived for that new reality, or they fought in a radically different way. John knows the reality of God's grace breaking in. Amen.